0: Well, good morning. It's morning for me. Um, It's a little after six in the morning for me. I am by uh, nature and practice an early riser. Um, And I'm out. I'm not in my usual location. If indeed we can say there is a usual location for recording this, the First Draft podcast. Uh, That crash of water, you can hear... Well, perhaps you can hear. I hope you can hear, although not distractingly, noisily, that crash of water, is the sea. Uh, And I'm out just having a little look at it. The sun rose about ten minutes ago, and there's left a a sort of salmon... Not salmon, actually, because there's more orange in it than salmon. It's like smoked trout. A smoked trout tinge to... A grey and purple bank of cloud away in the east. The sun doing its best to rise over it. I have no doubt it will succeed. Um, I'm travelling at the moment. This may be not a long podcast episode today because uh, one of the reasons I'm up early is I'm tending to an insomniac child who has no patience or truck with people recording podcasts. And the other reason is I think it might be about to absolutely pelt down with rain. And the combination of that and the sea uh, on the sound quality is likely to kibosh this episode. However, there's some birds as well. Great. Actually, no, I like birds. Anyway, um, thank you all... For all the subscribers, anyway. Well, thank you all, first and foremost, for listening to this uh, this podcast. I mean, looking at the numbers, looking at the back end, looking at the engine on my Substack, and I'm just uh, I'm flabbergasted and very grateful for everybody who has downloaded the previous episodes of this podcast and has been enjoying our little sort of freeform Q and A on historical topics. Thank you particularly to subscribers to my Substack. Uh, you drive this content. If you want to subscribe uh, and you don't already, please do. It means you can join in on the Wednesday forums where a lot of the content for this Substack account is suggested, created, uh, birthed. No, I do the birthing. It's, it's the conception that happens on a Wednesday. Um, anyway, this Wednesday, is, I've, I've never had... I don't think I've ever had, no, I don't think I have ever had more responses to a, uh, a Wednesday question, which was, who are your favourite historical authors and what are your favourite, and or what are your favourite works of historical fiction? Um, so a major, major thanks to all the subscribers who joined in that. Uh, there's, there's no hope that I will read out all of the comments because there were just uh, so many of them. But it was really interesting to see what you all have been reading, uh, and I, I, I particularly love to see everybody swapping book recommendations because um, that's how books get read, and that's how books get sold, and uh, people recommending author, new authors to one another it's kind of the lifeblood of of publishing in many ways. So thank you for joining in that thread. Thank you for swapping book recommendations. I'll just, I'll just give you the headline if you want to go back and look at that thread if you're if you're looking for something to read on vacation on holiday this year go and have a look at that thread because there are just i mean dozens upon dozens upon dozens of amazing recommendations of great historical novels we're talking about historical fiction here rather than straight-up hardcore uncut history um so i'll give a few of the recommendations i just want to talk about one broader issue uh, that was raised by a few of the commenters, because I think it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a massive, massive field of discussion and debate in the history, historical fiction world. So, but I'll come to that in a minute. So I'll, I'll just rattle through a few of the, uh, the top line, the headlines of people's favourite historical authors, uh, historical fiction authors, and then I'll talk about the, the bigger ideas. Okay. So, I mean, in many ways, this is like a greatest hits of modern historical fiction writers. So I'll, I'll, I'll run through some of the recommendations we saw. And some of these names, I just, I don't think will surprise you very much. And the reason they won't surprise you is because these are some of the great historical writers. So um, who did we have? Sharon K. Penman's name came up and again and again and again. Shannon said, the trilogy that begins with when Christ and the saints sleep, uh, slept Sorry, begins with the sinking of the White Ship and continues through the reign of Henry II. Uh, Shannon says Sharon K. Penman includes just the right amount of historical detail to evoke the period, but her books are also really well plotted and full of action. And I mean, I, thank you for that comment, Shannon. I can't think of a more succinct uh, manifesto for writing good historical fiction. So thank you very much for that. And I know a lot of. Other listeners have enjoyed Sharon K. Penman's books over the years. Uh, Amy Kaufman recommended C.J. Sansom's Matthew Shardlake series. Uh, so Shardlake, if you haven't read Shardlake, is... Um, well, how do we describe it? He's a sort of detective in the 16th century. And most of the books, maybe even all of the books, I think most of the books are set in the reign of Henry VIII. The one that sticks in my mind is Dissolution, when Shardlake uh up to York... Um, During dissolution, monasteries, 1530s, and there's there's one moment from Dissolution by Sansom that really, really stuck in my mind and has done ever since, and that's when he encounters King Henry himself, and the um, the appearance of the king is is like the appearance of a god, and it's the awesomeness just of the sight of this one person is evoked so well by Sansom in that book. that really stuck in my head, actually. I mean, going back many, many years when I read this. But it stuck in my head as something that fiction could possibly do that non-fiction possibly can't, which is to evoke the emotional reaction, or at least to suggest the possibility of the emotional reaction of uh, of people to one another in a previous age. But we'll talk about a bit more about that in a minute. Um, Neil Jones recommended Bernard Cornwell. A lot of others recommended Bernard Cornwell. Cornwell, in many ways for me, is... is is the master. I mean, not not just the master of technique and of plot and of character, but of sheer productivity. I mean, there's some years Cornwell's been turning out three books a year, whether it's the Sharp series or the Yachtreed series. Um, I've, I've been lucky enough to talk to Bernard a few times. I interviewed him last year or maybe the year before. It was, it was when one of the lockdowns, the COVID lockdowns. Um, and... He's just so fascinating, so generous with his time, with his advice. He's very funny, a dry sense of humour. He's, uh, he's very self-deprecating. He's actually incredibly knowledgeable about history. Um, but he's always saying, I'm not a historian, I'm not a historian. But his books are, are anchored in historical circumstance and historical facts. Uh, but they are also... Independently, brilliantly character driven. And one of the things that Bernard Cornwell says, he said to me a couple of times, is, and this will drive again at the root of um, what is historical fiction all about. He says, in, uh, When you're writing history, you're usually dealing with the big story. You know, let's say it was a, a book about the dissolution of the monasteries, you'd be writing about the dissolution of the monasteries. That would be your big story, and the small stories, just the incidental anecdotes and details and Accounts of people's lives, well, those would kind of populate the big story. You'd be dropping those in as little examples. He says, well, in in historical fiction, what you're doing is flipping that model on its head. So the small story is in the foreground, and that, you know, I'm applying the Bernard Cornwell model to Sansom here, so but that might be Shard Lake in the Sansom but going up north, and his, his individual experience and his individual, I can't even remember the plot of Dissolution anymore, but whatever. And the big story then is the background, it's the, it's the atmosphere around it, and, and that has really been in my mind, as, as many of you know, I've been writing historical fiction this year, I've been writing my novel Essex Dogs, and that rule of thumb from Bernard has really been in my mind, that um, it, the small story comes first, that the big story, that is the, the great historical circumstance, serves the small story, so I think, anyway... Uh, big up Bernard Cornwell because he gave me some good advice, but big up Bernard Cornwell because he's written nearly 60 books and he didn't start that early in life uh, and he's just a machine and he loves writing and he's a, he's a great guy. Hilary Mantel getting a lot of love. Chris Ball 4 says Hilary Mantel's books are a pleasure to read, but thought prov- not only a pleasure to read, but also thought provoking. Uh, and for me, Chris Ball says a good, I think, yeah, a good historical novel should present a perspective on history that's based in facts and academic research, but tells a relatable human story. Well, that's also a, a wonderful definition, a good working guide for historical fiction. So thank you very much for that, Chris Ball. For uh, lots of people saying um, <laughs> that, uh, actually, Maureen says her books made me like Cromwell with a really angry orange emoji face. Uh, and Chris Paul said, that's not such a bad thing. I feel like anyone who's actually executed is entitled to a few friends. Well, I mean, that's maybe we're on less secure ground there uh, <laughs> with uh, history. But that's, that's not the subject of this podcast. Philippa Gregory getting a lot of love. Helen Radford says, I really enjoyed all the Cousins War and Tudor court series. I know a lot of people love Philippa Gregory. A lot of people um, complain about Philippa Gregory because uh, they're so invested in the Wars of the Roses and uh, feel that um, maybe Philippa's novels have uh, come to feel like the history of the Wars of the Roses and people get, and, you know, they find people get confused between what happens in a Philippa Gregory novel and what actually happened in the real world. Well, maybe that's true. Um, you can't, my, I don't think you can really blame Philippa for that. She's just doing her job. Um, And Shakespeare did the same thing. I mean, all the writing I've done about the Wars of the Roses, those are probably the two authors you're contending with most, Shakespeare and Philippa Gregory. (laughs) uh, Both of them have put their own uh, fictional stamp on this period of 15th century English history, which for historians has been incredibly hard to shake ever since. So um, I think... Uh, that may feel like... I don't know what kind of a compliment that is for Philippa Gregory, but uh, after Shakespeare, Philippa. So, So, fair play. Um, Alison Weir says, Molly Thomas is probably my favourite. Also likes Hilary Mantel. Um, Ellie says, Can I say my guilty pleasure, historical fiction-wise, are Outlander and Discovery of Witches? Uh, And that prompted a big burst of people saying, "No, I quite like Outlander as well. Um, My goodness... There were just so many of these records. Amy Craddock mentioned something. Mentioned uh, a book I haven't read. It uh, was Marion Zimmer Bradley, The Mists of Avalon. And I want to read that book based solely on the title. Amy Craddock uh, was saying, well, you know, sure. Amy had read The Mists of Avalon um, as an impressionable teen. And Amy says, i never read... It was the first time I'd ever read anything that placed women in the centre of the story and with such power. It did influence everything I did after and my MA in Celtic Studies. I think that's a really important point because um, I used to say this a lot and I can't remember what the context was. Often when giving talks people would ask what I thought about the relationship between history and historical fiction. and, And I used to say that historical fiction was the gateway drug... Into history, and I, I said that partly because it usually got people a sort of laugh. You got a laugh from people, but I said also cause it's true. It's a good analogy. It's the, it's the thing that often draws people into um, the relatable past and gets them interested, and then that interest is later served by reading straight up history. Um, And I think that, I mean, some people never take that path. They just read historical fiction and they read crime novels and they read some Jack Reacher and um, that's cool too. Uh, But there are, you know, I think historians have to um, feel on comfortable emotional or uh, generous enough emotional terms with historical fiction writers because those historical fiction writers are the writers who are bringing readers into history. Um, That's... That's my opinion maybe it, maybe it resonates with you It is correct As all of my opinions are So um, just bear that in mind <laughs> uh, Jessica Tinsley says One of my absolute favourites Is The Time Traveller's Guide to Medieval England By Ian Mortimer uh, which, is a, um, which is a major I think is a major compliment To Ian Mortimer's writing In The Time Traveller's Guide to Medieval England Because that's actually a history book uh, But clearly he's written it so well That uh, it can pass for fiction um, I think, and again, there's, there's another important point about the relationship between history and historical fiction. I've uh, spent, a, you know, my work on the craft of writing history over the years has been to draw in as many of the techniques uh, from fiction as possible without distorting or... Um, uh, what's the right word without compromising the integrity of the book as history um because it's always been my feeling that a lot of people come into history from fiction or come into history from screen and uh, be that film or television and are used to the rhythms and shapes and the style of fictional writing and it can be an abrupt Jump in some cases and so the more you do to help readers out by making history books have some of the familiar story architecture to fiction the more those readers I think will understand and enjoy works of history and I I certainly know I've read Ian Mortimer's Time Traveller's Guide to Medieval England and what Ian does there is uh, very successfully take vivid descriptive techniques from fiction and limit his... Um, source material to what can possibly be known so that's it's a good fusion book between the two and clearly uh it has passed for fiction um which is yeah that's props to Immortima. uh what else have we got um deb says my fave historical fiction writer is me <laughs> that's her uh, because it takes a hell of a lot of imagination To make that stuff up and complete a novel uh, Benjamin Thrussell, Hello Benjamin Thrussell, Regular contributor says I love Robert Harris's Cicero trilogy um, I know a lot of you are regular contributors uh, Thank you all very much again Connie Golden getting some props We've got uh, Who else? Philippa Gregory again You see, the, so these are the names that are coming up And as I say, they're, they're, this, this is just a tiny sample Of um, Uh well, here's one that hasn't come up much. Laura Bessers. says, I'm also reading Ulrich A. Boschwitz's The Passenger Right Now, Gripping and Sad, 1938 Berlin, A Jewish Man Trying to Escape Berlin. Tragic real story of the author too. Okay, so th- that's just a little flavour of, um, of what's on the thread. But uh, we've got Lydia Rogers recommending Edward Rutherford. We've got, oh my goodness, uh, David Williams, Louis L'Amour. Uh, Peter Richard Woodman's Nathaniel Drinkwater novels. I mean, it goes, uh, it goes on and on and on and on. So, uh, if you if you're looking for inspiration for a new historical fiction read, whether you're planning a holiday, vacation, whether you just want something good to read over the next days, weeks, months, uh, I heartily recommend you go just go into the Substack archive and dig around on that thread from Wednesday. The title will make it plain uh, w- which article it is, because there are literally hundreds of recommendations of great new books there. Uh, and once again, massive thanks to everybody, all the subscribers, who took the time to, um, to lay down and share what they've been reading, what they've enjoyed over the years. Do I actually need now to say anything about the relationship between history and historical fiction? I thought I was going to do this in two sections, and now I don't really think I do. So all I'm going to say um, is that over the last week, as I've been sort of lying, not really lying on my sun lounger, uh, walking around uh, shepherding my children (laughs) about the place, but in my moments of downtime, or their moments of downtime, which the two things coincide, I suppose, I've been going through the near final manuscript of my own first historical novel. And that has been an incredibly... Uh, In some way, I was saying this to uh, somebody yesterday. It's been, um, on the one hand, the hardest book I've ever written, and uh, on the other hand, the easiest and most enjoyable. Um, I've had to learn how to write historical fiction, but that's also really fun. Um, And towards the end of it, I... I I sort of had a sense that The book was working certainly Or that I'd written a book that I stand by and enjoy Because I kept bursting into tears While I was writing it Um, Which I've never done with a history book At least not because I've been enjoying writing it (laughs) Um, And really I think that all the The sort of big ideas about The relationship between history and historical fiction That I've mentioned in the last 20 minutes or so Uh have, I've found, have been borne out by the writing. I, you know, my book is about a platoon of soldiers trying to survive in the Cressy campaign in 1346, and it's, it's, it takes the that campaign of the Hundred Years' War and applies a sort of World War II, hard-bitten, uh, maybe even a, a, like a Vietnam novel sensibility to the campaign, and it sees it through the eyes of ordinary guys just trying to trying to get by and not get killed. Um, and all the, so, you know, Bernard Cromwell's comment about the big story serving the small story, that, that's just, I think that, that was foremost in my mind when I started writing, you know, not making this just a kind of history of a military campaign, um, with a few episodes of Daring Do, Strung together, but actually, to make it a coherent novel in which characters develop and change and uh, learn and um, and have an independent emotional and interior life that 's separate from the action they 're perceiving and being involved in, um, that was massively important um, but the, the biggest thing that I had to think about and, and this people are talking about a lot on the, on the on the thread from Wednesday is what's the place of historical accuracy in historical fiction or what does it mean to be historically accurate and i think that this is this is we've mentioned philipa gregory this is often where philipa gets uh gets criticized for not sticking rigorously to known historical fact but uh, shaping and reshaping bits of it to serve the purpose of the story. And that's something I've come up against in Essex Dogs. There have been points where bits of the, the big story have not really... which are normally very important in the big story, have not really served the small story, a the, the most important story in the novel. And then as a as a history writer, you'd you'd feel like you would... I, I would have felt like, well, you just retreat from your novelistic techniques. Well, that's not an option as a novelist. And so you then have to make careful or cunning decisions about how to incorporate known historical fact into your chosen novelistic path. And one of the ways, or rather, the ultimate, ultimately the way that I chose to do it in Essex Dogs, and I hope that later in the year when you read the book you'll appreciate this, is to start each chapter with a little quote from a real historical source and then sometimes to bear out that historical source in the chapter that follows, of the chapter of fiction that follows, but sometimes also to cut against it, to use the fiction as counterpoint to the history and to make the deeper point that, in the case of the Hundred Years' War, all of, or most of the chroniclers writing about it, all the participants writing letters home about it, were, pe- were people sympathetic to knightly... The knightly class to knightly values and ultimately to the idea of chivalry and my deep point in Essex Dogs is that a lot of the time that's a that's some hot bullshit and the reality for ordinary people would have been directly opposite uh, the version of history being told by the sources and and in that, in those instances, then you—it's—it's it's a good device for getting around inconvenient bits of the history, because uh, the argument, which I actually think is pretty valid in most most cases, is that the historical sources are not necessarily true, or they're not necessarily true for everybody. And so, if um, Froissart, Jean Froissart. The Great Chronicle of the Hundred Years' War tells us that there was this sort of magnificent um, battle and it was incredibly glorious and, you know, blind King John of Bohemia died a sort of valiant death and the Black Prince, you know, was left to fend for himself by his father. Well, that's all well and good and in a history book. You might just sort of take that... uh, that source and use it and so these are the facts insofar as we know them but if you're writing historical novels or a historical novel and your job is to dig into the possible emotional lives of people involved in that story who may not have the same set of preoccupations and sympathies as Jean Froissart and more to the point were actually there then you can come up with a quite different plausible version of that history that cuts against Froissart and uh, and is yeah is 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 kind of counterpoint to the historical source, and I think that in itself is something that's not only fun as a writer to do, but is is very interesting and makes us think more deeply about history. Um. So anyway, that's the big that's the big thought for the day. Um. What can I tell you? The sun's properly up now. It's it's climbed above the cloud. It's burning or starting to burn the right side of my face Um, I need to apply some SPF Uh, I need a cup of coffee I need to dip my feet in the sea without worrying that I might drop this phone and lose to oblivion this podcast episode I hope you've enjoyed it thank you for listening thank you for downloading it thank you for um, getting involved with history etc on the Substack. thank you massively and once again to all the subscribers uh who have helped generate the ideas and uh the recommendations in this episode of the podcast i'll be back next week semi back next week um maybe three quarters back next week let's see what the numbers look like Uh, but i look forward to talking to you all again um thank you thank you thank you it's time for me to go love you